0: Well, good morning to you, CBC family, brothers and sisters, turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 as we get started with our time this morning. We arrived at great sadness last week in the text in John's prologue when we came to John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. John demanded that we discuss the doctrine of man that we call total depravity. Last week we saw in the text that men are so evil, so wicked, they refuse to know Jesus and actively reject Jesus, who is himself the light of the world. On the one hand every single person on the face of the earth has been enlightened by the absolute, pure, perfect, and righteous life of Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, men will not believe in Jesus. You'll remember that John said in John 1, 9-11, There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what were his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Friends, we described this last week and will today as total depravity. Total depravity is the inability of man to know, love, please, and glorify God. Martin Luther said it this way Man does not do evil against his will under pressure as though he were taken by the scruff of the neck and dragged into it like a thief, being dragged off against his will to punishment. But he does do evil spontaneously and voluntarily. And this willingness or volition is something which he cannot in his own strength eliminate, restrain, or alter. Luther goes on to say, the most damnable and pernicious heresy that ever plagued the mind of man was the idea that somehow he could make himself good enough to deserve to live with an all-holy God. Brothers and sisters, how well do you know yourselves? Do you know that you were born totally depraved? Do you know that you were born a rebel to God, destined for hell or do you believe, like most people, that you were born good? What do you believe about salvation? What do you believe? Or do you believe that salvation was just a, a good choice that you made? It's just available for all people. They, if they get smart enough, they'll just choose to be saved by Jesus. Can totally depraved sinners choose God? How does salvation happen? Why does salvation happen? If we are totally depraved, how can we become children of God and be guaranteed eternal life with Jesus in heaven forever? How? I hope these are the questions that are burdening your hearts and troubling your minds this morning because our text is going to take us right into the answer for all of these questions as we continue our study in the gospel according to John. You're in Ephesians chapter 2, however, where I want you to hear from the Apostle Paul who makes sense of total depravity and the unconditional election an irresistible grace and salvation that god places on to guilty sinners because god himself is full of love mercy and grace paul does this perfectly in 10 verses in ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 saying and you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among whom We all formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of our flesh and of our mind, and were by nature then children of wrath, even as every single one. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. That right there, that's a gift of God, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. If you don't like the idea that God is the one who does the saving, then you can't like the idea that he's the one that prepared the good works either. You see, it all goes together. He thought about us in eternity past. He has a plan for his elect. He speaks of that in Ephesians chapter 1 brothers and sisters, the text before you in Ephesians chapter 2 says that salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what the whole Bible says. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He doesn't need to ask your permission to save you. He's not sitting up there in heaven thinking right now, gee, I sure hope somebody will re- respond to me today through Oliver's words and choose to accept me into their hearts because of what Pastor Oliver's is saying. He's not chomping at the bit for someone to just accept him into their heart today. He's not chomping at the bit to do that. Because here's the thing, to the contrary, God will save who he has planned to save. And if today is the day of your salvation, today will be the day of your salvation. This is a strong salvation because God is in the business of salvation. He has elect on this earth who are being birthed every day who he is going to save. He has chosen to save even from before the foundation of the world, the ones whom he calls his elect. Friends, the light of Jesus is shining into this darkness. The darkness does not comprehend the light, except that the light allows for dark, sinful souls to be regenerated and brought to the life and light that is Jesus Christ and be saved. This is the message that John is speaking of in his gospel. Would you turn there now? John chapter 1. In his book, Systematic Theology, Wayne Grudem says, every part of our being is affected by sin, our intellects, our emotions and desires, our hearts, our goals and motives, and even our physical bodies. Scripture is not denying, says Gruden, that unbelievers can do good in human society in some senses, in human terms. But he says, scripture is denying that they can do any spiritual good or be good in terms of a relationship with God. John Newton himself was a former slave trader, turned Calvinistic pastor in the late 1700s in England. He penned these famous words which tell the story of his salvation by Christ, which is a perfect match for our salvation as well, when he composed Amazing Grace, which says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Salvation is at issue today in our text. Salvation is at issue all the time in modern Protestant evangelicalism because salvation is something that people desire to grasp and take hold of themselves. Salvation has been an issue for the last 2,000 years. What do you know and believe about salvation? How does salvation happen? Who's in charge of it? Do men choose to receive a salvation that has been supplied by Jesus Just like the apple crisp dessert has been supplied at the end of the buffet line? Is that how salvation works? You just choose the apple crisp or the pumpkin pie? Or is salvation given by God as a free gift, unmerited and undeserved by those who receive it? Do you march into heaven when you make your choice? Or are you invited into heaven as an unworthy guest? Every faithful pastor of every generation has declared the sovereignty of God and salvation just as the apostles and the prophets have recorded in Scripture and told us to teach it. Can I tell you this also? As far as I'm concerned, this is the number one issue why people will visit Community Bible Church. They'll soak up the fellowship of all of the joy-filled, spirit-filled saints They'll come to love and experience the way the Spirit is working in and among and through the believers in our church, and they'll do this for several weeks. But then, those same folks, they will take off from here. They will leave from us, never to be heard again, because we treasure this truth. I preach from Scripture to you, and you love it, that God has elected a group of people for salvation, and throughout the course of human history, God has been saving them. I preach a monergistic salvation... A one-sided salvation, a Calvinistic salvation that highlights the power and the will of God to give his salvation to unworthy wretches like you and I. And for many people, this understanding of salvation is too hurtful. It's foolishness. They don't understand it. They don't like it. No matter how clear the text is, they run away from it. They haven't been given eyes to see and ears to hear the purity of the gospel of truth. And so my prayer this morning as I begin to preach this text to you is that God would open the eyes of every single one of us in this room to the glory and power of God in salvation over the top of the free will of wicked sinners like us. You're in John chapter 1 where John is introducing to his audience one simple fact. Jesus is God. The truth of Jesus' deity must be presented up front, as it were, to explain all the glory, miracles, healing, and teaching Jesus did in his humanity. Before John presents seven special and significant signs from Jesus' ministry on earth that he presents so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the believing you may have life in his name, before he does that, you need to know Jesus is God, the creator of all things, the life of men, the light of men, the word who took on flesh, who is the full expression and explanation of God. And as we read our text this morning, I want you to consider the prologue has a fulcrum in it. It has a pivot point, as it were. One moment of great contrast, which happens at verse 12, at the presentation of salvation. Coming out of total depravity, and with this word of great contrast, John offers hope in this fact. Many received salvation. Out of the darkness, many received salvation. Many were given the right to become children of God. This is the focus of our morning let's read the text now in john chapter one in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was in the beginning with god all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing has come into being that has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it there was a man having been sent from god whose name was john he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me was ahead of me, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, Jesus has explained him. Brothers and sisters, the reason John is pressing the fact that Jesus is God is to make us certain of this. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Jesus' light did give life to men. Yes, the darkness was exceedingly dark, but the light was brighter. The light shine in the darkness and men were saved because Jesus came to save, to enlighten men, to give them in his power, salvation. John loves to call Jesus the Word, the Logos, but John also calls Jesus the Light, starting in John chapter 1, verse 4. This nickname for Jesus is very helpful to understanding the relationship between Jesus and all of humanity. You need to know this about humanity, that humanity is darkness. That's what you see in this world, darkness. And Jesus himself is the light, the light of life. Jesus' light is the only rescue and salvation for men because Jesus himself is God. In this portion of John's prologue, John breaks open the glory of the brilliant light that is Jesus Christ in the same way that a prism breaks open brilliant white light fracturing and separating the light into component parts, the seven colors of the rainbow. And it is only through the prism our eyes will see the full spectrum and manifold glory and brilliance of the light. John's prologue then acts like a prism, showing us the full array of the character of light who is our Lord Jesus Christ. It is here in John's prologue that I've told you in the past weeks, John presents nine details of the divine light which display Jesus' person and his passion. John reports in the text nine aspects of the eternal light that illuminate our need to believe. So then what are these nine aspects of the eternal light that display Jesus and demand our belief in him? The nine aspects of the eternal light are these in your text. You see them in the bulletin in your notes. Numbers 1 and 2, the essence and expression of the light from verses 4 and 5. Numbers 3 and 4, the ambassador and ambition of the light from verses 6 through 8. 5, 6, and 7 are the truth, tragedy, and trouble of the light in verses 9 to 11. We looked at that last week. Today we are at the reception and regeneration in the light in verses 12 and 13. Brothers and sisters, I apologize. I need to slow down. I told you that we would do 12 and 13 today, the reception and regeneration of the light. We won't. We, we can't. We'll do well to discuss the reception of the light in verse 12 alone. There is a considerable conversation that we need to have this morning about salvation in verse 12. And next week as well, we can look at salvation in light of the regeneration of the light in verse 13. For today, we will do well if we move out of the total depravity that happens in John 1 verses 10 and 11 and come to understand the reception and salvation in the light in John verse 12 of chapter 1. So this morning needs to be all about big salvation, a big salvation conversation. You need to understand salvation presented in John 1.12. It's best that I try to slow down and savor this salvation conversation with you the way that any of us, all of us, myself included, love to savor a cup of black mango tea in the morning. So don't rush it. Don't rush this one. Is salvation your cup of tea? It's mine. I love this conversation. And for your notes, then, let's consider the eighth of nine only today. Only one point in your notes, the eighth of nine aspects of the eternal light. The eighth of nine aspects of eternal light is number eight in your notes The Reception of the Light. This whole morning we'll be presenting number eight, The Reception of the Light. John Newton was born in 1725 in London, England, and was nurtured by a Christian mother until age seven when his mother died. Her death meant the end of the light of Christ in John's life for the next 16 years. In these 16 years, John Newton proved the depth of his own depravity, becoming a foul-mouthed sailor characterized by unsettled behavior, impatience, arrogance, and insubordination. He says of this time in his life, I sinned with a high hand and made it my study to tempt and seduce others. From time in the Navy to dealing in the slave trade, John Newton lived in total darkness. Darkness until the Lord sent a storm which overtook his ship so significantly that Newton feared for his life. He recalled the words of Solomon from Proverbs one twenty four, where wisdom personified says, quote, Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. Verse 25. And you neglected all my counsel and were not willing to accept my reproof. Verse 26. I will also laugh at your disaster. I will mock when your dread comes. John Newton was terrified by this Proverb, he knew that he was a sinner headed to hell and that the Lord was laughing at his disaster because of how evil he had become. Newton also knew that at this time, the Lord was calling him out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Though the full sense of this salvation would take years for him to come to understand. John Newton was darkness until the light of Jesus Christ in the midst of a terrible storm opened his dark. Wicked, sinful eyes. If sinner John Newton received the light, what are the implications for the rest of all of humanity? If Jesus gave slave trader John Newton the right to become a child of God, how many more will Jesus call into an eternal relationship with himself, his father, and his spirit? Friends, we don't get to know the total number of all of who get saved by Jesus' grace while we live on this earth, but we do get to know the highlights of the salvation given by Jesus to dead, depraved sinners just like us. And so that's what we need to consider this morning in our text. In our text this morning, allow me to give you another outline for where we're headed to in verse 12. In our text this morning, John provides four qualities of illuminated relationships which proclaim the sovereignty and authority of the light. It is in our text today in verse 12 that John presents four features of light-driven salvation that declare relational intimacy and security for those who are called the children of God. That's what I want us to see this morning. What four features of light-driven salvation declare Jesus' sovereignty and our relational security and intimacy with him? These four features of light-driven salvation include, number one, salvation is certain. Number two, salvation is given. Number three, salvation is rebirth. And number four, salvation is belief. Salvation is certain, given, rebirth, and belief. These four. And when I think about the totality of these four, two words come to mind. Certainty, given, rebirth, and belief When I think of those, I characterize them in my mind as the irresistible grace of God. That's what salvation is. It's the irresistible grace of God. I know it'll be your blessing this morning to know Jesus' sovereignty in salvation. It shows up so much in Scripture to remind us and declare and proclaim your salvation in Jesus Christ is secure not on your own terms, and certainly not in your own strength. He knows you. He loves you. He died for you if, in fact, you believe, if, in fact, He has given you the faith to believe. You see, friends, this is Calvinistic, monergistic, one-sided salvation that we preach at CBC. And the reason why is because this salvation has to be delivered, hand-delivered to you which means that it is a relational salvation. The salvation of the world that they present in Arminianism is a nameless, faceless salvation where Jesus just supplies salvation into the ether. And if you are smart enough, you step up and you go get that salvation. Trust me, you don't want that salvation because the whole course of the rest of your life you will work and strive and work and strive to secure yourself in that salvation because it's a salvation of your own choosing and you will always live in fear, paralyzed with the idea that you could undo your own salvation. That is not the salvation of the Bible. The salvation in Scripture says, Jesus chose you. Don't we often sing, my name is graven on his hands? My name is written on his heart? Friends, do you sing this with confidence and certainty, because Jesus knows you relationally or because you chose to write your name on his heart? How did your name get onto his heart? Did he write his name, your name on his heart, or did you write your name on his heart? Can I ask you, when did you write your name on his heart? The answer is, you didn't. But what happened was you received irresistible grace. You see, logically, biblically. Salvifically, salvation only makes sense if salvation is entirely of the Lord, which brings us to point number one in your notes, the first of four features of light-driven salvation, LDS. Yeah, we're going to talk about LDS this morning. (laughs) Light-driven salvation, that's where we're going, is number one in your notes, salvation is certain. LDS point number one, salvation is certain, light-driven salvation. Where do we see that salvation is certain? John presents the certainty of salvation in John chapter 1, verse 12, when he says, But as many as received him, but as many as received him. And someone will certainly ask me, Oliver, what do these six words have to do with the certainty of salvation? Well, that's a great question. Allow me to explain. First, we see certainty in contrast. We see certainty in contrast, especially in context. When John uses this Greek word day, which is translated but, John MacArthur says the conjunction day, but, is a small fulcrum that marks a dramatic shift. Day is a word regularly used to create sharp contrast. You have one here in the text. Out of darkness by irresistible grace. That's what you have here in the text. John 1.12 presents one of the sharpest contrasts in the Bible recognize please the context recognize the context we just came out of verses 10 and 11 which told us that the whole world is totally depraved globally the world is depraved not knowing God in a representative way nationally as well Jesus own people are, the Jews are totally depraved unwilling to receive Jesus their Savior their Messiah even hostile rejecters of their Savior with certainty then we see in John 1 John offering sharp contrast to verses 10 and 11 for the purpose of creating certainty in his audience that Jesus does save the totally depraved. Jesus does do that. The totally depraved are saved. Jesus has been saving and will save them. How many will Jesus save? Well, second, we see with certainty in the text the number of those who are saved. Oddly enough, it's an uncertain number to us for now, but it is certainly a number that is fixed in heaven but we don't need to know the total number right now who are saved. Most importantly, we need to know this, that salvation has come to more than one person who was totally depraved. This gives us hope, confidence, and certainty that if Jesus was willing to save, As many as received him, then the door of salvation is open for us today, just like it was yesterday, just like it was 2,000 years ago. Amen and glory to God. He does save. Reception of him is happening. The certainty of salvation is seen in the number of those who are saved here, as many as received him. Third, we see certainty in the Greek verb lombano, here translated received. The Greek verb lombano means receive, take hold of, obtain, even grasp. The mood of the verb is indicative, making it a statement of fact. The tense of the verb is aorist, which means that this action was completed in the past. And The voice of the verb is active, which tells us humanity has been reborn out of spiritual death and darkness. Humanity, men and women, have been and can be made spiritually, actively alive. Where at one time all were born dead to God, perfectly Spiritually dead, dead in unrighteous deeds and fully rejecting Jesus Christ, there are now men and women around us who have been made alive, who are active in embracing, trusting, and personally relating to the one who is called the light of the world. The tense voice and mood of Lombano give us certainty that our total depravity, so clearly expressed by John in verses 10 and 11, can be overturned, overruled, and outdone. You want to know how, that's what you want to know. What you get in verse 12a, you can say, is the certainty that it happens, because men received, as many as received him. There's certainty in this. Total depravity can be outdone. The proof of the overturning of total depravity is the fact that men and women have actively received Jesus, they received from him irresistible grace, it was delivered to them. Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Luke 10, verse 20. These six words offer great clarity by stopping the disgusting, despicable, deflating thought of total depravity in verses 10 and 11. Moreover, these six words pronounce the glory of God in salvation. Hallelujah, we would say. Dead men don't save themselves, do they? And somehow these guys received, as many as received... Praise God, it wasn't the dead men that did the work. It was God Almighty who did the work. The Savior Jesus Christ is active. He produced the salvation that he said he would. The light saved them. Humanity, bound in darkness, was helped to flee and escape the darkness that they were enslaved by because of the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus threw the lighted path of salvation, you could say, at humanity, specific people in humanity and in the power of the spirit that pass that he threw that lighted pass of salvation was and has been and continually is received by men brothers and sisters i need to tell you that some people will use this verse john one twelve, to create doubt in salvation some people will say to me oliver john uses lombano to highlight the free will of men to accept or reject jesus christ oliver this is the contrast that is in the text. You see, Oliver, God is a gentleman. He would never force salvation onto humanity. God receives the most love and glory from men when men choose to lombanoed him, to receive Jesus into their hearts, to accept him. Perhaps many of you here are today are thinking that very same thought. I would want you to know that if you are thinking that thought, that that thought is unbiblical thinking. My seminary professor calls that reasoning from below and not reasoning from above. Theology from below, not theology from above. It is man-centered theology that you're thinking of when you think that thought, not Christ-centered theology. And I would also tell you, you missed our Bible study this last week, which had us looking at Acts chapter 9, where Saul's free will was entirely violated. By the Lord Jesus Christ, who stopped him in his tracks and gave him the best blessing that his life ever could have received, which was irresistible grace, which is exactly what fell on his head when that light shined out of heaven. Irresistible grace. You've turned in your Bibles to Luke 10, 21, where Jesus has just welcomed back 70 of his disciples who he sent out to evangelize the cities ahead of him on the path to Jerusalem. And they've returned to Jesus with great news and full of joy. Jesus joins them in praise and rejoicing and then quickly turns to praise and thank his Father in heaven in prayer. Read Jesus' prayer with me and consider how is it possible to receive Jesus without the Father's personal revelation to you and the Son's personal permission and the Holy Spirit's personal irresistible grace applied to you? How is it possible? How do Jesus' words here in the text help us qualify what it is to lombano Him, to receive Him? Luke records in Luke ten twenty one, At that very time, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and He said, I praise you O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So I ask you, what man has lombanoed Jesus, received Jesus, without first himself receiving both revelation from the Father, the invitation of the Son, and the irresistible grace of the Holy Spirit? The answer to the question is none. There's not one person who has ever received Jesus who wasn't invited To receive Jesus. No one receives heavenly spiritual blessing without Jesus' permission. Which brings us to point number two in your notes. The second of four features of light-driven salvation. The second of four features of light-driven salvation is number two, friends. Salvation is given. Number two in your notes. Salvation is given. Turn in your Bibles to John 3. We'll look at verse 27. John 3, 27. In the event that you are unaware, the ponds at Manitou and Cannon Hill Park on the South Hill have frozen over. It is my sincere desire to be playing hockey on those ponds in a couple of hours. Feel free to join us. It makes for such a wonderful time, pucks and skates and sticks, passing, shooting, scoring under the beautiful blue sky, enjoying the crisp air, the solid, dense surface of the ice underneath your feet covered in skates. Do you have the picture of pond hockey and a thick frozen ice at Manitou in your mind? I hope so. Friends, allow me to make a parallel for you. We receive the light in exactly the same way the pond at Manitou will receive the blades of my skates. We are as dense, cold, and unresponsive to God as the ice-covered pond at Manitou. And yet, after the Holy Spirit has skated into our hearts shooting and scoring salvation for the glory of god we can absolutely say we have actively received the salvation of the holy spirit just like the ice-covered pond at manito could say it actively received my skating shooting passing and scoring yesterday as it is also now hoping to receive and will be blessed by the grace of more skating and shooting and passing and scoring today just as the frozen pond at manito comes to life When graced with our skating, shooting, passing, and scoring, so too the irresistible grace given by Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit causes us, wicked sinners, to come alive. Coming alive requires delivery, friends. You have to get something. Coming alive requires a receipt. Receiving requires a delivery. The football must be thrown to you to catch it. The puck must be passed to you to receive it. Your new hockey skates will arrive when Amazon delivers them to your front door, along with your mango black tea. Brothers and sisters, all spiritual realities, all eternal truths are given before they are received. Did you hear that? All spiritual realities, all eternal truths are given to you before they are received by you. You're in John 3. 27 where john the baptist says it this way john answered and said a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven Hmm. turn to john 644 while we're there turn to john 644 in matthew 16 verse 15 jesus asked his disciples who do you say that i am simon peter comes up with the right answer perfectly responding with this way you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to Simon Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He is the one who revealed that thought to you when you just said to me, You are the Christ, the Son of God, of the, of the living God. You didn't manufacture that yourself. You didn't get that from the guy down the street. You got that from my Father in heaven. He put that inside of your heart to say, in the power of His spirit. Jesus says to the disciples on the night of glory in the upper room in John 15:16, "You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide." You're in John 6:44? Jesus definitively says in John 6:44, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me." draws him, and I will raise that guy up on the last day. Turn back in your Bibles to John 1.12. Brothers and sisters, Scripture is screaming at you, declaring over and over again, receiving Jesus is only possible because salvation is first given. John uses receive in chapter 1, verse 12 to offer immediate <clears throat> direct and arresting contrast to the total sadness and deep, dark depravity in verses 10 and 11. If you'll notice, the verb in verse 11 and in verse 12 is the same verb, lombano, para lombano in verse 11, lombano in verse 12. He uses the one to immediately contradict and counteract the other one. What does John say next? that helps clarify what depraved men and women received. What did they receive? What was thrown to them? What was the past? You see there in the text, the qualification. Verse 12, we could call it B. To them, he gave the right. To them, he gave the right. John is pointing at the one who has received, and John is saying, let me tell you what that guy just got. Let me tell you what these people received. Listen, listen carefully because I don't want you to believe for a second that there was some inherent power in those people to understand light, life, and salvation in Jesus Christ. Not in their total depravity, no way. Not at all. You must understand anyone who receives Jesus was given the right to receive Jesus because salvation is exclusive. Salvation is given, like an invitation, it's given. Jesus threw them the football of salvation. Jesus is the coach who hands out the jersey of salvation. Jesus, the light of the world, gave the right, the authority, the ability, the status. This is grace, and it is irresistible grace that he gives. Now we're getting somewhere when we're talking about salvation that's irresistible. When he gives you something, that you look at the perfection of it, and you go, there's absolutely no way to deny this, to reject this, to run away from this, I just received the gift of eternal life. Now we're getting somewhere. Leon Morris says, there were people to whom he gave the gift that they should receive the word and become children of God. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 22. Some, Some people say, so what, Oliver? What's the big deal? Why is it so needful to always clarify that Jesus' giving of salvation comes before our receiving of salvation? Why is the one driving the other? Well, it's a great question. It's a great question. And as I I think about those who might be asking that question, I I, I just think, oh, how I wish that your asking of that question is genuine. That the real heart desire is that you come to understand the salvation that Christ is applying to people who are sin, sick, desperately depraved. James Montgomery Boyce tells us the importance of this salvation that is driven by God, the importance of this light-driven salvation is that it gives the one who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ great boldness. It gives us great boldness. What is great boldness? Great boldness is confidence, assurance, certainty. Why are confidence, assurance, and certainty helpful for you in this life? This salvation was delivered, not stolen. Eternal life was given as a gift to you, not a reward for all of your striving to get it. That my place at the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven forever with Jesus has my name on a placard right in front of my seat. I didn't make the placard, but there it is. It says Oliver Jones right there. I know that that's there, right next to a nice large glass mug full of iced tea because I'm a child of God. And I was personally invited to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, marriage supper of the Lamb, and the angels are the ones preparing my name card and my iced tea, not because I barged in and assigned a seat to myself at the table, but only due to the grace of God, which is irresistible. He put it on to me. I didn't ask for this, I would have never asked for this. He assigned it to me. You're in Matthew 22 where Jesus tells a parable that speaks of salvation and the irresistible grace of God. This parable bears great resemblance to John's prologue on these specific topics, especially John 1.12. Let's read Jesus' parable and consider how salvation, a seat at the table in heaven with Jesus, must be something that is given, like an invitation. Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son." And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatted livestock. All are butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized the slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways. And as many as you find there, invite those ones to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all that they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Brothers and sisters... In the light of this salvation, this kingdom of heaven parable, how critical for you is it to receive an invitation to Jesus' party? How important to you is it that Jesus gave you the right to show up in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb? The thought of crashing Jesus' wedding party should be horrifying and totally embarrassing for any one of us. How do you know, friend, that you aren't yourself a wedding party crasher? Turn back in your Bibles to John 1, verse 12. How blessed are we to be given salvation by Jesus Christ as an invitation? A personal invitation, not a blanket invitation. Jesus loves you. Choose to love him back and work the relationship out. No. You hate Jesus, and he says, you're mine. That's what he did to Saul. We don't want to be party crashers. We don't want to be those who claim Jesus on our own terms, a Jesus of our own understanding, and expect a seat at the wedding table only to be found out that we're going to be drug out and not allowed to be in there. The elect of God are the ones who receive the invitations. This must be a delight to your heart because of the way that it gives confidence, boldness, certainty, security, the way that it ends your striving in this life to please Jesus for the purpose of getting salvation. I'm going to do works, good works in this life because Ephesians 2.10, God prepared them from beforehand that I should walk in them. Yes, but more so. I'm going to do those good works because I love Jesus. He put the irresistible grace of salvation onto me. And I don't see that there's anything else I can do but love him in obedience and worship all the days of my life. This must be the way that your heart delights in the salvation that Christ gives. You, you must delight yourself in the fact that Jesus gave It gave salvation. When Jesus gives salvation, he creates for us a boldness, a confidence, and a certainty in us in order that we might contend with all the sin, the wickedness, the evil trials that we end up facing, the challenges that dominate our lives. I would ask that you not compromise on your understanding of salvation. Don't be someone who says, but I chose Jesus. Don't be someone who does that, because the whole course of the rest of your life, you'll be wondering if you're going to unchoose him. Jesus gives salvation. If we understand that and know that, because the Bible says that, it gives us confidence and boldness in this life to do the good things, the good works that he prepared from beforehand that we should walk in. He purchased salvation in his blood. Not one drop of his blood went to waste. He took names to the cross, friends, Jesus did not provide a general salvation that you can receive if you are smart enough, not at all. To the contrary, he knows how dead, dumb, and depraved that we are. So Jesus provided an unconditional, irresistible salvation that he applies directly, personally, and exclusively to those whom God calls his elect. The text says he gave the right. Right is the Greek word exousia, which means authority, power, right to control, govern, or exercise dominion. Leon Morris says about John's use of exousia here in the text, John's thought is that of status. They have received, says Morris, full authority to this exalted title. Not only is there a status, but there is a change of status. It was Jesus, it is what Jesus speaks of as passing from death to life in chapter 5, verse 24. And this is what we have done in his salvation. We are those who have passed from death to life, not because of our own choice, because Jesus put salvation onto us. And so we see salvation is certain, many receive Jesus, and salvation is given. Still further, we come to understand that salvation comes with the authority of a status change and a new title, which brings us to point number three in your notes, where we ask the question, how does someone's status before God change? Point number three in your notes will tell us. This is how it happens. The third of four features of light-driven salvation. The third of four features of light-driven salvation is number three. Salvation is rebirth. Salvation is rebirth. Now, cast your minds back to high school for a moment. Every fall, within a couple of weeks of the start of school, everyone remembers seeing the status change in the hallways at our public high schools. Yes, there is a very distinct status change when the high school football coach selects the young men who will play on the varsity football team and gives them their numbers and their jerseys. Do those jerseys go into the locker room or the gym bag? No. No, they don't. Where do they go? The football players scream status. And so those young men who have been chosen by the coach wear those jerseys up and down the hallways in their public high schools because they are saying, I represent the school." And I will practice this Saturday the righteousness of throwing, catching, blocking, and tackling. High school football players are chosen. They receive a number and a jersey. The coach knows their name. He has picked them based on how well they have performed. Friends, Jesus' salvation is exactly the opposite. We are not Jesus-elect because we are fast and strong nor does Jesus select us after we've gone through tryouts to find out how well we can block and tackle. To the contrary, amazingly, you don't get an opportunity to impress the coach at all because coach Jesus knows all of the available recruits, their worthlessness, their total depravity, how dead they are in their own sins, which makes Jesus' salvation that much more incredible and that much more special. In an instant, by the irresistible grace of Jesus Christ, through his spirit, we are born again spiritually. We are new creatures, no longer dead in our trespasses and sins because we have a new light that lights up the inside of our heart, our spirit. Jesus changes our nature, our status from the inside out and gives us a personal, intimate, tender, highly relational title. We become children of God. I hope this sounds crazy to you because it's not normal. This understanding of salvation is spiritual rebirth that is entirely supernatural. It is entirely outside of normal. We see it here in the text when John says in chapter 1, verse 12, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to be birthed children of God. To become is the Greek verb, Genomai. We've spoken about Genomai a couple times already in John's prologue at verse 3. We see it three times. Verse 6, verse 10, here in verse 12, soon coming again we'll see, Ginomai in verse 14, 15, and 17. Ginomai speaks of creation. It means to be, to be born, to become, to be made, to come into existence or to be birthed. This is the language of new birth. Salvation only happens where Jesus has given us the right to be rebirthed spiritually. Edward Klink says, it is almost certain that we are to understand, become in a similar manner to, the, to came into existence in verses 3 and 6. Such children are a new creature. They are those, not of this world, who have received spiritual rebirth from above. Turn in your Bibles to John 3. John chapter 3. <clears throat> Friends, we cannot say enough this morning about the birth analogy, the rebirth analogy in the text. John got the rebirth analogy from Jesus after Jesus used it with Nicodemus' one night in Jerusalem. Are you familiar with the rebirth analogy? I would hope so. Friends, when you are thinking about salvation, you need to be thinking rebirth, second birth, birth all over again. Of course not physical birth. We're talking about spiritual birth because you were born spiritually dead, unable to know, please, or glorify God. Who among us is so arrogant to believe that they can rebirth themselves spiritually? We live in an arrogant culture, people are changing their identities and there are women who are calling themselves men who are birthing, that's how arrogant our culture is. But the height of absurdity here is to believe that you can rebirth yourself spiritually. That would be the height of absurdity, to believe that you could rebirth yourself spiritually. Brothers and sisters, this is the great dividing line in understanding salvation, who gets credit for rebirth? How powerful is the rebirth analogy? The power required for rebirth is found in the title that is given to those who are rebirthed. You remember in our text, John gives the born again, the title children of God, which tells us rebirth, that is new existence, new creation, is accomplished by a work of God. Children is the Greek word technia, which is used in the plural in our verse. The implication is that there are a community of spiritually rebirthed people who relate to God the way that children relate to their father. God is our father. Relational intimacy, personal connectivity, community with weak, infantile people like us. That's what we have. And to that we say amen. Edward Klink says, the term children describes offspring from the viewpoint of the relationship to their parents and is therefore normally used of small children with an accompanying awareness of their weakness their utter dependence on their parents, and their total trust in their parents. James Boyce says, we need to recognize first that people are not or do not become God's children naturally. John stresses that we become God's children only by means of new birth. You're in John 3, where John first heard from Jesus that salvation is done by way of rebirth. John records in John 3.1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, just totally ignoring what he just said, (laughs) Jesus says, Truly, truly, Nicodemus, I say to you, you teacher of Israel, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is the case with everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is presenting a very exclusive salvation by rebirth. This is a monergistic, one-sided, Calvinistic, sovereign God salvation. This is exactly the opposite salvation that is being presented by easily over 80% of the churches in my estimation in Spokane, let alone in America, because this salvation makes the Lord Jesus Christ the one who is determinative in salvation. Other churches and religions play a really horrible, wicked, destructive, mean game with salvation. They're lying to you. They're lying to your friends and family. Whether we're talking about Christian, Christians, air quotes, like Joel Olstein, Kenneth Copeland, Pentecostals, Roman Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, and Buddhists. All of these other religions teach a synergistic salvation. You, in, in our circles, it's Arminianism, an Arminian salvation, the opposite of Calvinism. A salvation that presents eternal life in return for work, effort, labor, money, service, sacrifice. Get to work, little human. Get to work. Get on your little hamster wheel and run around and you'll spin it around so much that God will be pleased, the light will come on. And that'll mean salvation has come to you. Oh, but if you stop running, the light will come off. So stay on the wheel and keep running around because salvation is only going to happen by your works. Really? Really. Did Jesus just say salvation comes from human effort? Not at all. That's the whole point of the birth analogy. It's so perfect because it paints the the saved in terms of their helpless inability to save themselves. This is the dividing line in salvation. Ground zero of all salvation debates start here, John 3. Rebirth yourself, friend. Spiritually, rebirth yourself. Are you going to do that? How do you do that? Do you believe that Jesus is describing here in John 3 a salvation that allows you to rebirth yourself? with the right quality and quantity of good works? Or is Jesus saying to Nicodemus, salvation is out of your reach? Isn't it that? Isn't he saying to Nicodemus, salvation is out of your reach, man. You can't get it. It has to be delivered by God. Is salvation produced by men or by God? Who saved you? Did you save you or did Jesus save you? What part did you play in your physical birth? Did you really believe that you play a part in your spiritual rebirth? Turn back in your Bibles to John 1.12. Friends, the, the reason for all of my questions is because knowing salvation accurately is critical. Literally, billions of people do not understand the glory in Jesus' salvation given to us by rebirth. And so they strive and strive and live in fear of losing the salvation that they have supposedly chosen. Do you know the salvation that Roman Catholics teach? Do you know the salvation that Jehovah's Witness and Mormons teach? Can you articulate, friend? Can you articulate differences between one salvation that leads to death and the other salvation that leads to life? Do you know the differences? You better know the differences. How is that going to shape your evangelism if you don't know the differences between our salvation, the biblical salvation, and the ones of your Roman Catholic friends? It's different, and it's important that you know salvation. Do you know the differences even between Calvinism and Arminianism? Which one are you? Arminians would say that they believe in rebirth, but they would say rebirth can't happen unless you will it to happen. Really? Is that what you just saw this last week in Acts chapter 9? Is that what Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel? The apostle John had heard this type of argument, which is why he wrote John 1.13, where John says, who, the saved ones, the born-again ones, the children of God, who, those guys, were born, they were born, they were birthed, not of blood, that is not of genealogy. Nor of the will of the flesh. You didn't desire to do this and make this happen. Nor of the will of men. This didn't come because your pastor conferred this onto you. No, no. They were born of God. Verse 13. Calvinists, on the other hand, they say that rebirth is Jesus' choice to deliver to the elect of God whenever he determines to save the ones that he has elected. And for all I know, today could be the day of your salvation, friend. Today could be the day of your salvation jesus could will to save you even at this moment he is not waiting for you to choose him rather jesus will choose you when he is good and ready and that begs the question what's going on in your heart what's been happening over the course of the last month what's been happening last week what happened yesterday why are you in this chair today why are you still seated listening to this message this message is so piercing and so foolishness that people hear this and they run out of here and they flee why are you still here What is God doing in you? Is he doing the drawing? Is he doing the calling? Is today the day of your salvation? I would pray it is. If Jesus does save you, you will know it. He comes in power and sends his Holy Spirit who washes and cleanses your soul, causing you to repent and believe. Which brings us to point number four in your notes, the fourth of four features of light-driven salvation. The fourth of four features of light-driven salvation is, number four in your notes, salvation is belief. Salvation is belief. John Newton said, "I am not the man I ought to be. I am not the man I wish to be. I am not the man I hope to be, but by the grace of God. I am not the man I used to be." He was made aware of the salvation that God placed on him by his Calvinistic pastor preacher George Whitfield. Newton sings of the irresistible grace of salvation an amazing grace, saying, "Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. I was taught. My heart was taught to fear. Grace did it. Grace. And grace is the thing that relieved my fears. Grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear in my sin-sick heart, the hour I first believed. D.A. Carson says, new birth is finally nothing other than an act of God. New birth, says Carson, with new birth, people enjoy the privilege of becoming the covenant people of God, a privilege lost by the Messiah's own people. But we're the children of God, and as the children of God, the new covenant people of God, there are expectations placed on our behavior, especially within the first hour, you could say, of the application of grace onto us, specifically that we believe. But not just in anything. What are we to believe? What is the content of belief that confirms salvation and spiritual rebirth done by Jesus? What expectation comes with LDS? What expectation comes with light-driven salvation? Not man-driven salvation, light-driven salvation. We see the expectation here in the text in John 1.12 when John says, To them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. Believe is the Greek word pistuo, which means to put one's faith in, to believe, to trust. More than any other writer in the New Testament, John loves to talk about pistuo, believing. Interestingly, John does not use the noun pistis for belief, for faith in his gospel. He likes the verb he likes the participle, the active verb, pistuo. For John, believing in Jesus, believing in God, is actively a transaction that the Lord is doing in our hearts. He's causing us to be active in it. This is an active uh, activity that was restricted from us in the Garden of Eden at the, fall of, uh, at the fall of Adam and Eve. Actively, our sin nature makes us unable to know, to desire, and even trust our Creator, which is why in the act of salvation, in performing our spiritual rebirth, Jesus not only takes our sins and gives us his righteousness, moreover, he gives us the faith to actively believe in him and the glory of his marvelous light in, our, in, our, in the salvation that he's delivered to us. The Apostle John affirms what Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, which we read earlier. Both of these men had people to contend with that said that salvation is of man, and, and they both issued statements in their works that said man didn't do this you didn't choose this 2 8 ephesians 2 8 says this for by grace you've been saved through faith and that is not of yourselves it is the gift of god so that no one may boast john newton says this is faith a renouncing of everything that we are apt to call our own and relying wholly upon the blood righteousness and intercession of jesus and while newton says the When Newton says, that is, the blood, righteousness, and intercession of Jesus, he is speaking about the full content of all that we know about the person and work of the God-man, Jesus Christ. John Newton believed in Jesus' name, which is exactly what the Apostle John says will happen. The children of God who have experienced spiritual rebirth are those who believe in the full content, character, work, ministry, life of Jesus Christ, right into the meanings of his incarnation, his perfect life, his powerful three-year ministry, his horrifying crucifixion, three days buried in a tomb, a resurrection, and ultimately an ascension into heaven where he is with the Father at the right hand, praying and interceding for our salvation now. John MacArthur says his name refers to the totality of Christ's being, all that he is and does. D.A. Carson says the name is more than a label. It is the character of the person, even the person himself. Turning your Bibles as we close our time to Philippians 2, 9. The proof of salvation is belief, specific belief, relational belief, content-filled belief in a person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I want you to consider an important distinction here regarding belief and knowledge. John is not saying that knowledge of Jesus comes out of people who are spiritually born again. He is saying belief comes out of them, not knowledge, belief. The demons know who Jesus is and they tremble at him. So what is the difference between knowledge and belief? What's the difference? Let me illustrate it to you this way. You can believe in a parachute. You can believe the Oxford definition about parachutes, which says that a parachute is a cloth canopy which fills with air and allows a person attached to it to descend slowly when dropped from an aircraft. You've likely watched videos. You know that, you, that parachutes are real and even understand the engineering and manufacturing that makes them. You can even yourself be in a plane at 10,000 feet, the plane loses all power, and you yourself will gladly, because you know what a parachute is, put one on your back and jump out like everybody else. But you have not exercised belief in the parachute until you pull the ripcord of the parachute and allow the canopy of thin fabric to suspend you and descend you through the air at a reasonable speed until you arrive safely back onto this earth. Belief constitutes engagement. Belief is highly relational. The, Bible, the biblical expectation of God's elect, who are born again by the light of Jesus Christ, is that we believe in his name, that we trust Jesus just like we would trust a parachute. Philippians 2.9 is where Paul confirms the desire of God is that we believe in the name of Jesus. Verse 9, therefore God has also highly exalted Jesus, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, Jesus is the name of the man who is fully God, who died to pay for the sins of all those who place their trust in him. Jesus is the name that saves. His name declares his character. There is a profound warning in the text in Philippians when it says those under the earth, even those in hell, friends, will bow their knee and confess Jesus. I want to comment on that warning as we close our time. I would ask that you turn in your Bibles to John 20:31. Have you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord? Do you believe in his name? Peter says in Acts 4:12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which men must be saved. Friends, we're all born sinners. We come into this world rebels and active hostility to God. We all share the same experience. The consequence for our hatred of God and unbelief in Christ is eternal punishment in hell forever. That's what we all deserve. That's what you get. That is God's eternal decree. That is the punishment for failure to see the light and to recognize him and to worship Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Eternal hell for unbelief is right, necessary, good, and just on God's part. You have been warned. Unbelief results in eternal hell. But there is another eternal experience Jesus is offering today. The Lord Jesus Christ is today giving salvation to unworthy wretches and sinners just like us, just like he's done for the last 2,000 years. And my question for you is this, has Jesus given you the ability to believe in him even in his name today? Is Jesus calling you through his gospel out of your darkness into his marvelous light? Have you been and are you at this moment being born again? Friend, will you not leave here today? Until you tell me that you know that you have been given the right to be called children of God. Today I showed you from John chapter 1, verse 12, light-driven salvation, monergistic, Calvinistic, one-sided salvation. Salvation is certain, given, rebirth, belief. We've been given so great a salvation, we enjoy confidence, assurance, certainty, all of our lives. Because of the power of Jesus Christ to rebirth us over the top of our sinful free will. John MacArthur says, saving faith accepts Jesus in all the scriptures revealed concerning him. So I ask you again, have you been born again? Are you a child of God? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Allow me to leave you with this one final thought from John Newton, which I hope and pray that will be on your thoughts as you end your life as well in this world. At the end of his long and salty life, John Newton said, although my memory is fading... I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. We're going to pray. We're going to sing a final song. Let's do that now. Father in heaven, bless every single person in this room with the understanding that Jesus Christ saves. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.